John chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There is a tremendous amount of content in those five verses. And I felt like I needed to tackle that, that section together because it's kind of one complete thought. Um, but as I began to dive into those verses, I realized just how widespread this was going to take us in, in, in content. So um, what we're going to do together today, bear with me, we're going to take this phrase by phrase, and we're going to look at what, what John is saying here. And God willing, at the end, uh, I'm, I'm going I'm to try to bring it all back together here into something that's digestible, okay? So bear with me as we kind of traverse a whole lot of areas. We've got a journey ahead. So let's go back. Let's go verse 9. Again, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Who's the true light? Jesus. Jesus is the true light. Jesus is the true light of the world. And what John tells us here, he already breaks into some controversial statement here. He says, Jesus, the true light of the world, gives light to everybody. He gives light to everyone. Now... If you take that statement and you pull that out of the context of the rest of John 1, you're gonna, there, that can be easily misunderstood. Um, what that sounds like, Jesus, really, Jesus, the true light, gives light to everybody? Everybody, the whole world? Um, what it sounds like is Jesus came to make everybody a recipient of the Holy Spirit, and he's giving everybody salvation. Um, but that's not what John's saying. And we know that's not what he's saying because of the very next verse. Joel just read it. Read verses 10 and 11 um, and, and 12. To those who did receive, uh, he came into the world and the people did not receive him, but to those who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. So obviously not everybody receives Christ and is a children of God. So what in the world is John saying when he says, Jesus, the true light, gives light to everybody? I think what John is referring to is what theologians call general revelation. General revelation is this. It's exactly what it sounds like, actually. God revealing himself to the world in a general way, in a way that's accessible to every person that's ever walked the planet. Okay? Um, he illuminates every heart everywhere to his presence and to his character. That's what general revelation is. The classic text on that comes out of Romans chapter 1. It says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So do you see what Paul is saying in that statement in Romans chapter 1? What Paul is saying here, he's saying there will never, ever ever be somebody who will stand before God on the last day at judgment day and say, well, okay, how can, how can you judge me? Because I didn't even know you existed. Nobody ever, ever told me that you even existed. So how can you judge me? Nobody can ever say that. Why? Because what Paul's saying is, because since the beginning of time, God has made his presence known, his power known, and his very nature known in the things that have been made in, in, the, in creation around us. 
God has done this in a couple of ways. He's done it through our external environment, the things with the world around us, and in our inner instinct, in the world outside of us and the world inside of us. Simply look at the world. We look at the world around us, and from the beginning of time, in every culture, it's been, understand, it's been understood that there must be someone or something out there behind it all. There must be some great spirit in the sky. There must be some designer, something behind all of this. It's been understood. Every culture, every era, this has been the case. This has been the assumption. Um, Christians today often get accused for, for conjuring up what, what, what some call a God of the gaps. Have you heard that term before? Okay, Christians, Christians get accused of this. We're, we're, we, get, we, we created a God of the gaps. In other words, we don't have the answers to explain why things happen the way that they do. We don't understand nature and all that, you know, that it does. Therefore, we've invented a God to help fill in the gaps of our understanding. That's, that's, that's the God of the gaps. What Romans chapter 1 is telling us, what general revelation tells us, is that, in fact, it's just the opposite is true. Just the opposite is true. I, I watched an interview a while ago with um, a guy named John Lennox. John Lennox, is this, he's a professor of mathematics at Oxford University, and he's a Christian. Brilliant guy. Um, what he said helped sum it up well for me. He basically, he said, basically, he said, I don't believe in a God because of what I don't know. I believe in God because of what I do know. Okay? I don't believe in a God you know, because, of, because of the gaps in my understanding. I believe uh, in, in a powerful, creative, orderly, beautiful, and a good God because of what I do know about math and science and the world around me. You see? We look around. There must be a designer behind it all. Not because we can't explain, but because what we do see, what we can't explain. There must be an orderly and a beautiful and a creative God behind it all. An orderly God. Um, but again, general revelation goes deeper um, than just giving us a glimpse at, the, the, again, the, the fact that they're, uh, um, you know, of what we see around us. You, we, we don't just look on the outside, we also look on the inside. Every civilization of every era has held to a certain code of morality, all right? And I'm not saying that they're all identical. Obviously, there are variances in, in some of the minor details. But basically, I think it's safe to say that every civilization has said that it's not okay just to go around and killing each other for the fun of it, just for willy-nilly. Okay, it's not okay just to go and rape and pillage your next door neighbor, all right? Um, why? why? Why is that? Well, because basically there are some things that just transcend. There is a transcendent moral law. There are certain things that are just right and wrong. Why? Because there are certain things that are sacred. Life is sacred. There's a transcendent moral law, and the only way that there can be a transcendent moral law, which means a moral law, right and wrong, that transcends your opinion and my opinion and our culture's opinion and that culture's opinion, the only way that there can be something that is inherently right or wrong is if there is a transcendent moral law giver. Somebody who is above it all who determines what is right and wrong. Does that make sense? You still with me? Okay. So um, we see again that there's a, a powerful God, a, a creative God, a, a God that values beauty. But we also see what he's like. He must value love. He must value goodness. He must value mercy. He must value justice. And we get all of this without reading one page of the Bible. Look at the world around you. Look at the world inside you. And you can already infer all of this about God without one page of the scriptures. That's general revelation, okay? Um, he has, God has shown his light on everyone. He gives us a glimpse of his presence and his power and his nature in a general way that is accessible to every person on the planet, whether you live in New York City or you live in the jungles of Africa. This is, this is God has illumined every heart, okay? But God didn't stop with general revelation, did he? John 1.9 says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, 
was coming into the world. That's special revelation. That's what theologians call special revelations. Special revelation is a unique revelation of God. One, one aspect of special revelation given to us is the Holy Spirit-inspired scriptures. That's special revelation. God reveals his character and his instructions and his promises through his words to the prophet and to the apostles, and then they write it down, and then it's given to us that we might be able to uh, see God for who he is. Uh, but he didn't just give us the spoken or the written word. He gave us the word. Remember John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. We're going to find out next time we open up John 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, Tim Keller in his book, Reason for God, says it like this. He says, when a Russian cosmonaut returned from space and reported that he had not found God, right, he was in space and he's like, hey, just a heads up, I didn't see God out there, okay? He, Russian cosmonaut returned from space and reported that he had not found God. C.S. Lewis responded that this was like Hamlet going into the attic of his castle looking for Shakespeare, if there is a God, he would not be another object in the universe that we could put in a lab and be, and be analyzed with empirical methods. He would relate to us the way that a playwright relates to the characters in his play. In the Christian view, however, the ultimate evidence for the existence of God is Jesus Christ himself. If there is a God, we characters in his play have to hope that he put some information about himself in the play. But Christians believe he did more than just give us information. He wrote himself into the play as the main character in history, when Jesus was born in a manger and rose from the dead. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. General revelation, special revelation. God has gone to tremendous lengths to make himself known and available to men and to women. But what we read next in verses 10 and 11 describes the great tragedy of human history. What I'm about to read to you right now could be perhaps the most saddest statement in all of the scriptures. Just describes this tragic reality um, that, that we find ourselves in. Verses 10 and 11. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That's the reality. That's the tragic reality. But take a minute and meditate and think through what this actually says. The word world that John uses here in, in verse 10, he uses the word three times. Right, the word world. Three times he uses that. There's different meanings, though. In the, in, the Greek, it's, in the Greek, it's actually the same word, but depending on the context that it uses, the, the context within which it's used, it actually has a different meaning. So what John is actually saying here, he is saying Jesus was in the world, as in the created world, nature, right? He was in the world, nature, and the world, nature, all of creation, was made through him. Yet the world, humanity, did not know him. Yet the world people did not know him. He came to his own. Verse 11 says, he came to his own. That's saying everything, everything belongs to him. We don't, you know that we don't give anything to God, right? Everything belongs to God. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. I, I thought about this for hours this week. I'm giving you a minute to understand what all this means. Please, please put on your thinking caps for a minute here so that you can, you can uh, understand what this is saying. Jesus came into the world, and the world was made through him, and it belonged to him, and it existed for him, and it was in submission to him, the created order. And yet, John says, the people, the people who were made uniquely in his image, rejected him. 
The created world was his, and it accepted him as king. But his own people, uniquely made in his image, refused to do the same. Try, try, to, try to get the, the, the tragedy that's being stated here. Okay, um, let, me, let me try to break this out a bit more um, throughout the, through other scripture here. All throughout the Bible, you're going to see the rest of creation is still existing for the praise of God. It's still living in submission to, his, to its creator and its king. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words, are, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Job 12, ask the animals, and they will teach you. Or the birds of the air, and they will tell you. Or speak to the earth, and it will teach you. Or let the fish of the sea inform you. Which of these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. One more. Isaiah 55. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. And by the way, this is talking about Jesus. That's a prophecy about Jesus there. Uh, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. And listen, and the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Let me give you another few examples. When the Pharisees rebuked the people for worshiping Jesus as God when Jesus was riding into Jerusalem, remember? And the Pharisees rebuked, they said, "Don't, don't praise him like that. What did Jesus tell the Pharisees? He says, if they don't, the rocks themselves will cry out. Remember? When, when Jesus, a few days later, died on the cross, when he breathed his last, what did the earth do? Shook. It trembled. The earth trembled as its creator breathed his last. Think about in Mark, when Jesus goes out to the wilderness and is tempted by Satan. Mark tells us that Jesus goes out, and for 40 days before he meets with Satan, for 40 days he fasts and he prays. You know what else Mark tells us? Mark tells us that when Jesus goes out into the wilderness, that Jesus goes out and I quote, with the wild animals. He goes out with the wild animals. Anybody ever wonder what that meant? It's kind of a, a, a bizarre statement. Um, G. Campbell Morgan, uh, in, in his book, Crises of the Christ, he points out that a lot of people have a wrong conception about, about that verse there because what, what we, we read that and what we think is, oh, poor Jesus, I hope he's okay, Right? We, you know, we pity him, and we think, how, how is he able to have any type of peace or be able to focus on his prayer and his fasting and his fellowship with the Father and the Spirit? How could, he, how could he manage under those kind of conditions when he's under constant threat of attack from wild animals? Okay? Um, but that's not what's being said here. What, what G. Campbell Morgan is saying is, this is, it says Jesus was with the wild animals. Think about that. Jesus was hanging out with the wild animals. A.W. Tozer says it like this. Instead of pitying Jesus for those terrible hours or days spent with the wild beasts, we ought to remember that he was perfectly safe there, for not a sharp claw would tear the skin of the man who was God. Not a hand would rip the body of the man who was God. The very wind blew for his pleasure. The very earth on which he trod smiled. The stars at night looked down on his humble carpenter cottage, and the winds and the rains and the snow were all his strengths. Listen, the natural world was not against him, only the human world. Please don't think that I'm going all pantheistic on you, or that I think trees have souls, or that I think all dogs go to heaven. I'm not saying that. Okay, don't get it twisted. Here's the point I'm trying to make. The great tragedy is that Jesus came into his world, 
his own world and the beasts and the rocks and the trees and the mountains in some unexplainable, unfathomable way were in submission to their creator, were in submission to their king. And yet men and women who are uniquely created in the image of God refuse to do the same. That's the tragedy of human history. Elizabeth Elliot used to put it something like this. She'd say, she'd say something like, she said, a clam glorifies God better than you. A clam glorifies God better than you because the clam is being the clam that God intended it to be, yet you are not being the man or woman that God intended you to be. That one hurts a little bit, doesn't it? Tozer again says, it would not be hard to point out that the greatest moral blunder in the history of the world was when Christ came to his own world, the caterpillar on the leaf received its king, but his own people turned him away. See the tragedy? And if that were where John's statement stopped, right at verse 11, we'd just be left in utter despair. Um, But, of course, that's not where it ends. In the words of my son's, my five-year-old son's Bible, in the words of uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible, it says this, in another story, it would all be over, and that would have been the end. But not in this story. God loves his children too much to let the story end there. Even though he knew he would suffer, God had a plan, a magnificent dream. One day he would get his children back. One day he would make the world their perfect home again. And one day he would wipe away every tear from their eyes. You see, no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love his children with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Amen? John moves from one of the saddest, most tragic statements in all of the Bible to one of the most glorious promises in all of the scriptures. Verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, before we go too far past verses 9 through 11, though, and we, we, just, kind of, we just kind of soak in 12 and 13, before we move past 9 through 11, um, I think it's important for us to ask the question, um, why? Why didn't the people receive him? Why? What was it? Why wouldn't his people? We, it's important for us to know. We don't do the same thing. Why didn't the people receive him? Now, I want you to notice here, it doesn't say that his people didn't recognize him. It wasn't like, oh, he was God? Really? How did I miss that? It wasn't that they didn't acknowledge him to be the Messiah. They didn't acknowledge him to be the king. It says they didn't receive him. That's the word that John uses. It says they didn't receive him. There's a big difference. The Gospels actually tell us that there were religious leaders who actually believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they so feared the other Pharisees that they kept their mouths shut and they kept their hearts shut. The Scriptures tell us that they, they, were more, they, they pursued the glory of men rather than the glory of God. Other times, you know, Jesus, people will come to Jesus and say, oh, Jesus, I want to follow you. I think in you there is life. I want to follow you. And Jesus says, okay, you have to understand what this is going to cost you. He looks at one guy and, 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 and implies that this man's money is his king. He says, you're going to have to take your grips off your finances. You're going to have to let your money go. And the man turns around and walks away brokenhearted, right? He tells, he tells another time, he says, okay, you want to follow me? You want, you want me to be the Lord of your life? Your love for your family and for everything else for that matter is going to have to look like hate in comparison to your love and your affection and your devotion to me. That's what he says. He says, you're going to have to take up your cross and fold after me. You're going to have to die to yourself. This is going to cost you your life. Um, scholars tell us that 
Jesus' followers were probably in the tens of thousands during his teaching ministry. Tens of thousands of people were following him around as he was teaching. Um, but there came to a point as his, as his ministry progressed when just droves and droves and droves and droves of people left him. They just walked away because, in their words, his teachings were too hard. Um, Ultimately, there were things that they just could not let go of. There were just things that they could not understand. They couldn't wrap their minds around it, and they weren't going to worship somebody that they couldn't explain. They they're not going to follow somebody that they couldn't just put in a nice little neat box. There were things, ultimately, that they just would not repent of. Um, and again, please don't get it twisted here. I'm not saying you pay for God's love. You don't earn God's favor. You don't pay for his uh, acceptance. You cannot pay for his love. It is a free gift. That's grace, unearned gift, unmerited favor. But Jesus over and over and over and over is going to say, count the cost. He says it all throughout the gospels. Count the cost. You cannot pay for his love, but you need to count the cost. You can't pay for his love, but it will cost you everything. Nothing will stay the same. Um, C.S. Lewis, in one of my favorite books called The Great Divorce, uh, says this. He says, the choice of every lost soul can be summed up in the words, Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. There is always something they insist on keeping, even at the price of misery. There is always something they prefer to joy. You see it easily enough in a child that would sooner miss its play and supper than say it was sorry and be friends. You call it the sulks. But in adult life, it has a hundred fine names. Revenge, injured merit, and self-pride, and tragic greatness, and proper pride. See what he's saying? Jesus, when Luke chapter 4 tells us when Jesus preached in Nazareth, he, he, was, um, he was preaching, and we're told that the, that the people there received him gladly. Uh, Luke 4.22 says, All spoke well of him, and they wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. Right? Everybody says, oh, this Jesus, he's so great. Listen to these gracious, pleasant, delightful words that he's, he's giving to us. But in a few verses later, it says that the people were filled with wrath, and they tried throwing Jesus off of a cliff. What in the world happened? Okay, they, they received him while his words were pleasant and full of grace. But when, as soon as Jesus pointed out their pride, as soon as Jesus called them to repent, they were furious and they were filled with wrath and they wanted to kill him. That's the great tragedy of human history is that we have sacrificed true life for the trivial. We have rejected the true king for the measly kings and queens of self and sex and power and pride. But you see, by holding on to these things that we think we just cannot live without, we just can't live without these things, we're missing out on true life. C.S. Lewis again says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we're far too easily pleased. Your plans, your pride, your control, it's all got to go. You have to let go. All these things that, you, you, that you're holding on to, you've got to let it go. You have to repent. We think about uh, Peter. This, Peter was brought to mind this week. Uh, remember at the one point where Jesus asked Peter, he says, Peter, Peter, who do you think that I am? Who am I? What does Peter say? He says, you're the Christ. You're the Son of God. You are the Messiah. You are God in the flesh. And Jesus says, Peter, you're right. And then, then, then Jesus goes on and he tells Peter and the rest of the apostles, he says, I'm about to go to Jerusalem, I'm about to suffer, I'm about to die for the sins of the world. And what does Peter do? That Peter, this man who just said, you are the Savior, you are God in the flesh, 
Peter hears this and he says, death? I don't like the sound of that. And he pulls Jesus aside, this man who he's just said, you are God. And he pulls him aside and he says, no, Jesus, you're wrong. He rebukes him. He says, you're wrong. Um, Peter had recognized Jesus to be the Messiah, but he had yet to receive him as king. Again, there's a big difference between recognizing somebody as king and receiving them as king. Some of you here today understand conceptually that Jesus is who he claims to be. You understand intellectually that Jesus is God. Jesus is king, but you, but you haven't received him as king. We talk a lot about accepting Jesus into your heart. That's like the verbiage that we use in our American church culture. Oh, have you accepted Jesus into your heart? Have you received Jesus to be your Lord and Savior? Do you have any idea what that means? Do you guys, do you guys know what that means? Um, I think it's important for us to, to clarify. Receiving Jesus means taking Jesus into your life for what he is. Receiving Jesus means taking Jesus into your life for what he is and who he is. It does not mean like this peaceful coexistence with Jesus. It's not like, you know, he, he's invited into the house as long as he doesn't play his music too loud. Right? We talked about this uh, a, a lot last week. The biblical definition of a Christian is someone in whom God has made his dwelling. That's what a Christian is. Someone in whom God has made his dwelling. And you cannot welcome God into your heart, into your life, and then lock him up in a closet or keep him confined to a corner. God is not like a roommate who comes in and he's got his stuff and you've got your stuff. You know, you know he's not allowed into your bedroom, right? And your fridge is kind of divvied up. You know, you've got your name on certain stuff that he just can't touch. That's not the way it works. God is not that kind of a roommate. Receiving Jesus means that when Jesus offers himself to you, you welcome him into your life for who he is. And who is he? When he comes to you as Savior, you welcome his salvation. When he comes to you as leader, you welcome his leadership. When he comes to you as counselor, you welcome his counsel. When he comes to you as protector, you welcome his protection. When he comes to you as your provider, you welcome his provision. When he comes to you as king, you welcome his rule. That's what it means to receive Jesus. Receiving Jesus means saying yes wholeheartedly to his gifts and to his authority. John says, but to all who did receive him, to those who would believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, John uses the word believe over 90 times in his gospel. Over 90 times he's going to use that word, and every single time he uses it, it's a verb. It's not, you know, just faith isn't like a noun, like a thing. It's an action word. Believe is an action word. Um, John says we're to believe in his name. Uh, when you believe in someone's name, someone's name simply means the full stature and the dignity and the authority of that person. So when John says we're to believe in his name, it means to actively place our faith in all that Jesus is. You understand? We actively place in all of our, our, that Jesus, Jesus is. When we believe, when we have faith, active faith in something, it means that we lean, we place our whole weight on all that Jesus is. That's what it means to believe in his name. If we receive him, we say yes to his gifts and his authority in our life. If we believe in his name and we actively place our faith in all that Jesus is, the Bible tells us he gives us the right to become children of God, to be born of God. We are born again and I know that that's not a popular term to use these days, is it? When you're called a born-again Christian, um, that's often seen as an insult in our culture, right? That born-again uh, is what we kind of, uh, you know, the extreme right, right? Oh, those are the born-agains, right? According to the Scriptures, 
If you are a Christian, you are born again. And if you are not born again, you're not a Christian. When you say, I'm a born-again Christian, that's an, you're being redundant. You're saying, I'm a Christian Christian. Okay? I'm born again, born again. That's what it means to be a Christian. If you're not born again, you're not a Christian. Okay? Um, to be a Christian does not only mean in some general, vague way that you receive forgiveness and acceptance and legal standing with God. It, that's part of it. You receive legal standing with God, but it goes more, it, it's deeper than that. That's the means to an end. God, Jesus did all that. He forgave you so that you can be born again. That's the point. It wasn't just that we wiped the slate clean. It was that you can have access to God and be born again, a spiritual rebirth. But again, um, you know, we say we're born again into the family of God. You become a child of God. The, the thing is, when you ask most people, if you were to ask somebody out on the street today uh, about what it means to be a child of God, they say, well, we're all children of God. God is everybody's father. And to that we say, well, yes, kind of, and no. Um, you could say yes, maybe in a general way, in the same way that maybe, you know, the Wright brothers are the fathers of aviation, or that Henry Ford is the father of, mo- of the Model T, okay? Henry Ford wasn't tucking the Model T in at night, though, right? It's, it's, it's a different, so in some kind of general sense, since God created us all, in a sense, you could say, yes, he's everybody's father because he's everybody's creator. But that's not what John's saying here, and that's not what Jesus is going to say in a couple of chapters. Something much deeper is being described. We're talking about family relationship. Family relationship. We're talking about intimacy. We're talking about spiritual rebirth. When, you, when you're a part of God's family, you are, you are given brand new spiritual DNA. Peter says, and, and I think it's 1 Peter 1, he says, we're made partakers of the divine nature. We're made partakers of the divine nature. That means we're talking, you're, you're born with new DNA, DNA so that there's family resemblance. He's, he puts DNA in me so that I, be, I begin to grow up and begin to look like my dad. Right? That's what that means. We begin to look like him. The nature of the father is embedded into the child that he or she might become like the parent. That's what Christ came to bring, new birth. Jesus did not just come to tell you to get your act together or to present some new revolutionary teaching. He didn't just come to add some footnotes to the Mosaic law. He came to bring dynamic spiritual rebirth. One passage I read this week said it like this. Whenever somebody begins to notice their need for God, the first thing they say is, I need to turn over a new leaf. I need to get religious. I need to reform my life. They are in for such misery because they spent all of their life being crushed by expectations and standards trying to live up. Now they're going to take upon themselves a whole new set of them. The Bible says you do not need to turn over a new leaf. You need a whole new root. Jesus says, I'm not out to make better people. I'm out to make a whole new kind of person. I am not, in a sense, trying to get the horse to jump higher. But I want the horse to sprout wings so he's a whole different species of creature. In other words, it's not like you were unethical and had to become ethical, even though, of course, there is eventually a moral reformation that does happen in the life of a person who's born anew. But what Jesus is saying is, I'm not out to make an unethical person ethical. I'm out to make a dead person alive. So, I've been a lot of places today so far in the, in the talk. I told you at the end, I'm going to try to somehow bring this all together at the end. We've talked about how God has made himself known to us uh, in so many different ways. And the tragic reality is that we have utterly rejected him. 
right? That's verses 9 through 11. And then we jump to verses 12 and 13, and, and we, we jump to these sweeping promises that God makes about adoption and new birth into his family. But as I was studying this week and mulling this over and just meditating on these five verses, um, I just had a really hard time. How do I glue all of this together? What is, what, is, what, is, what is the glue that can put all of this together? What is the bridge that can walk us from the tragic reality of our rebellion that we see in 9 through 11 over to these sweeping promises that we find in verse 12 and 13? What is the bridge that will be able to connect these two? And I almost missed it. I almost missed it. And then Thursday night, um, I was driving to go meet a couple of friends of mine uh, from here at the church. I was driving, and, and I... In the car, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And it was one of those times, I was listening to a sermon, um, and it hit, hit me, and it was one of those times when, when you, the gospel just doesn't get old, does it? It's, that's what we're talking about. It's a living thing. I mean, it, I mean, it just, it, you see it from all types of different, I was just, I was literally shaking in the car. My heart felt like it was going to beat out of its chest. It just lit me up. It's these gospel truths. Um, it hit me on Thursday night. It's verse 9. And it'll take me a minute to be able to explain what, this, what I mean here. But in verse 9, it says this. John, we, we started out the passage saying this. The true light has come. The true light has come. That explains it all. The true light has come. That word true isn't, you know, the antithesis of false. What the word true means uh, is genuine, real, authentic. It's the light. The true light has come. In other words, every other light in the world, physical or spiritual, every other light is but a shadow to this true light. Um, I read an article this week, and this was Wednesday night. I read this article on Wednesday night, and I was thinking about this article a lot, and then coming on Thursday night and hearing this other sermon, it just, again, it all just kind of lit up the way, I love the way God does this. So I read an article this week, and what the article was, was uh, talking about was the author was paralleling how Jesus, the light of the world, is can be kind of um, compared to physical light. And he was just talking about the different ways that you kind of see similarities. And, uh, let me just read you a few sections of the article here. He says, In the natural world, there is nothing as pure as light. It is a characteristic of light that it cannot be defiled. No matter what it falls upon, it can never be corrupted. It exposes corruption, but is not touched by it. From this understanding of light, we can get a wonderful picture of Jesus. He exposed sin, but he was never contaminated by it. You see, it is his light that convicts and convinces us of sin. Another place he says, another characteristic of light is its victory over darkness. Darkness has no power over the light. We simply turn on the light and darkness flees. Rather than curse the darkness, we need to realize the power of Jesus Christ and bear witness to his victory. Okay, and then the last one. This is the one that got to me. Listen up. Light is made up of the spectrum of seven colors of the rainbow, the absolutely perfect number seven. Now, and then again, the Bible oftentimes refers to, you know, numbers as symbolic of something. So the number seven is often, often refers to, you know, completion and perfection. So the spectrum signifies the beauty and the perfection of the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Put the colors back together and we have pure white light, which reminds us of the fullness and the holiness and the purity of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I was, I read that Wednesday night. I was thinking about that much of the day on Thursday as I'm studying and so on. I'm driving Thursday night and uh, I'm still struggling to put everything together and then I listen to this sermon, and guess what the pastor preaches on? Rainbows. How many, have, how many of you guys have ever heard a sermon preached on rainbows before? Okay, I did, and it was that day. All right, uh, I, I heard the guy preach on rainbows. What is a rainbow? It's sunlight refracted off of the rain, right? 
Sunlight refracted off of rain. And as I listened to this podcast, this sermon, all of the pieces started to fit into place. Let me take you back to Genesis for a minute. Remember Genesis, uh, God uh, floods the earth as judgment for sin in the world. Okay? He saves Noah and his family. And then afterwards, God says uh, to Noah and his, his people, he says, never again am I going to destroy the whole earth. Never again will I destroy the whole earth. He says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Um, and he says, and this is going to be the sign of my covenant. This is the symbol of my covenant. And what does he give? The rainbow. Do you know that the word, the, literally what God says is, he says, I have laid my bow in the clouds. I have laid up my bow in the clouds. I've set down my bow. And in, in the Hebrew, the word is kasheth. It, it's the word for a war bow. It's a battle bow. It's a weapon. It's, we, you know, we know that he's talking about a rainbow. Think about a rainbow. He's talking about, I, I've, I have laid up my bow. I'm setting down my weapon. Um, so do you understand what God is saying as he says that? He says, he says, saying, I'm laying down my weapon. He just destroyed the world. He just destroyed people. He said, I'm, but I'm, now I'm setting down my weapon. So he's saying no more full-blown wrath and condemnation. No more full-blown judgment on the world. So Think about that for a minute. Why in the did, did God actually think the second time around was going to have better consequences? Did he actually think, he's like, okay, good thing we took care of that. Noah, you guys are going to be great. I'm sure it's going to really work out this time. Right? Your, your, your uh, descendants are going to be much better than your ancestors. I'm sure of it. Did he think that it, things were actually going to go better that time around? No, of course not. Of course not. So the question then is how can God do that? How can he lay down his weapon? How can one side go to peace while the other side is still at war? This side over here, Noah's descendants, it doesn't take long for you to see that in the Bible. Noah's descendants are rebellious. They're no better than the ones before them. They're just as rebellious. So how can God lay down his weapons? Um, it would seem to imply that God wouldn't judge sin anymore, and therefore God would no longer be a God of justice. Um, Charles Spurgeon tells us how it's possible that he's able to lay down his war bow. He's able to lay down his weapon. Charles Spurgeon says this. He says simply, look at the rainbow. Look at it. Look, look at the rainbow. He says, he was saying, you know, if it was pointed down, right? If it was upside down and, and it was actually like this, right? And it's pointed down. Imagine how scary that would be, right? As you see this and you're just thinking at any point, God could just get upset and he just, you know, twang, you know, destroy the earth, right? God's judgment. But look at the war bow. Where is it pointed? Where is it aimed? Spurgeon says the reason why God is able to lay down his bow is because it's pointed up, not down. It's aimed up. God has not stopped being a God of judgment. God has not stopped being a God of justice. It's simply that God is aiming his arrows of wrath somewhere else. They're going into someone else. Where did those arrows go? Where did God's justice land? Jesus. You see? Timothy Keller writes, one of the things that's so astonishing about the rainbow is you'll always find a rainbow at the conjunction of sun and storm, where the light and darkness come together, where the mercy and judgment come together. That's where you'll find the rainbow. Again, it's our bridge between 9 through 11, 12 through 13. Um, 
where light and darkness come together, where mercy and judgment come together, that's where you'll find the rainbow. Isaiah 53 says, The chastisement of our peace was upon him. On the cross of Jesus Christ, we see the storm. Why? God was so infinitely holy, somebody had to die. But on the cross, we also see the love of God. He's so infinitely loving that the Son of God offered up himself in our place. In other words, on the cross, the storm of eternal justice and the Son of God's love come together. And that's why you have a rainbow. Every time you look into the heart of the storm and you see the rainbow of grace, you remember that's where Jesus went. He went into the heart of God's wrath out of love for us. Listen, he got the lightning so we could have the rainbow. He got the lightning so we could have the rainbow. The rainbow was a sign of God's covenant given in Genesis. It was a symbol of God's covenant. The light refracted off of the rain, that physical light, is simply meant to point us to the true light, and the true light has come. The true light has come. He has come into the world, and in him has li- is life. He took the arrows of God's judgment that we might find forgiveness. He was forsaken that we might be for, uh, accepted. He died that we might have life. So receive him today. Believe in his name today, and through him you can be born again as a child of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. Um, we thank you for your great... Uh, promises, Lord, even in light of these, these tragic, uh, sad realities, Lord, that we have rejected you and we have rebelled in such a profound and deep, um, eternity-changing way, Lord, you have found a way, Lord, uh, by taking the, the wrath and the punishment for our sin upon yourself. Um, I, I pray, Father, that you would help us to understand that uh, and, and, and live in that and, and, and even for those of us who have been, who've been Christians now for, for decades, w- would you give us each experiences like that, even as, as Anthony was talking about a few minutes ago, that there are just times when you would just hit us like a freight train with the truth of who you are and what you have done on our behalf. May that change how we live today. May it change um, how we operate in, in our thinking and our perspectives and our hope and our peace each and every day. That, that the ultimate God of the universe who controls all things, who holds all things in the palm of his hands, loved us enough to die for us, to take those arrows of judgment that belong to us, that we might be born again into new life. Father, I thank you so much for who you are, what you've done. We celebrate you today. You are so worthy. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.